Section 8 of Inca Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Inca Lands by Hiram Bingham. Section 8. When we moved to our second camp, the Tejada brothers preferred to let their mules rest in the Puyusca Valley, where there was excellent alfalfa forage. The arrieros engaged at their own expense a pack train which consisted chiefly of Paranacochas burros. It is the custom hereabouts to enclose the packs in large meshed nets made of rawhide, which are then fastened to the pack animal by a surcingle. The Indians who came with the burro train were pleasant-faced, sturdy fellows, dressed in store clothes and straw hats. Their burros were as cantankerous as donkeys can be, never fractious or flighty, but stubbornly resisting, step by step, every effort to haul them near the loads. Our second camp was near the village of Incahuasi, the house of the Inca, at the northwestern corner of the basin. Raimondi visited it in 1863. The representative of the owner of Paranacochas occupies one of the houses. The other buildings are used only during the third week in August at the time of the annual fair. In the now deserted plaza were many low stone rectangles partly covered with adobe and ready to be converted into booths. The plaza was surrounded by long thatched buildings of adobe and stone, mostly of rough ashlars. A few ashlars showed signs of having been carefully dressed by ancient stonemasons. Some loose ashlars weighed half a ton and had baffled the attempts of modern builders. In constructing the large church, advantage was taken of a beautifully laid wall of close-fitting ashlars. Incahuasi was well named. There had been at one time an Inca house here, possibly a temple. Lakes were once objects of worship, or rest house constructed in order to enable the chiefs and tax-gatherers to travel comfortably over the vast domains of the Incas. We found the slopes of the hills of the Paranacochas Basin to be well covered with remains of ancient terraces. Probably potatoes and other root crops were once raised here in fairly large quantities. Perhaps deforestation and subsequent increased aridity might account for the desertion of these once cultivated lands. The hills west of the lake are intersected by a few dry gulches in which are caves that have been used as burial places. The caves had, at one time, been walled in with rocks laid in adobe, but these walls had been partly broken down so as to permit the sepulchres to be rifled out of whatever objects of value they might have contained. We found nine or ten skulls lying loose in the rubble of the caves. One of the skulls seems to have been trepanned. On top of the ridge are the remains of an ancient road, fifty feet wide, a broad, grassy way through fields of loose stones. No effort had been made at grading or paving this road, and there was no evidence of its having been used in recent times. It runs from the lake across the ridge in a westerly direction toward a broad valley, where there are many terraces and cultivated fields. It is not far from Nazca, Probably the stones were picked up and piled on each side to save time in driving caravans of llamas across the stony ridges.
The Yama dislikes to step over any obstacle, even a very low wall. The grassy roadway would certainly encourage the supercilious beasts to proceed in the desired direction. In many places on the hills were to be seen outlines of large and small rock circles and shelters erected by herdsmen for temporary protection against the sudden storms of snow and hail which come up with unexpected fierceness at this elevation, 12,000 feet. The shelters were in a very ruinous state. They were made of rough, scoriaceous lava rocks. The circular enclosures varied from 8 to 25 feet in diameter. Most of them showed no evidences whatever of recent occupation. The smaller walls may have been the foundation of small circular huts. The larger walls were probably intended as corrals to keep alpacas and llamas from straying at night and to guard against wolves or coyotes. I confess to being quite mystified as to the age of these remains. It is possible that they represent a settlement of shepherds within historic times, although, from the shape and size of the walls, I am inclined to doubt this. The shelters may have been built by the herdsmen of the Incas. Anyhow, those on the hills west of Paranacochas had not been used for a long time. Nazca, which is not very far away to the northwest, was the center of one of the most artistic pre-Inca cultures in Peru. It is famous for its very delicate pottery. Our third camp was on the south side of the lake. Near us, the traces of the ancient road led to the ruins of two large circular corrals, substantiating my belief that this curious roadway was intended to keep the llamas from straying at will over the pasture lands. On the south shores of the lake, there were more signs of occupation than on the north, although there is nothing so clearly belonging to the time of the Incas as the Ashlars and finely built wall at Incahuasi. On top of one of the rocky promontories, we found the rough stone foundations of the walls of a little village. The slopes of the promontory were nearly precipitous on three sides. Forty or fifty very primitive dwellings had been at one time huddled together here in a position which could easily be defended. We found among the ruins a few crude potsherds and some bits of obsidian. There was nothing about the ruins of the little hill village to give any indication of Inca origin. Probably it goes back to pre-Inca days. No one could tell us anything about it. If there were traditions concerning it, they were well concealed by the silent, superstitious shepherds of the vicinity. Possibly it was regarded as an unlucky spot cursed by the gods. The neighboring slopes showed faint evidences of having been roughly terraced and cultivated. The tutu potato would grow here, a hardy variety not edible in the fresh state, but considered highly desirable for making potato flour after having been repeatedly frozen and its bitter juices all extracted. So would other highland root crops of the Peruvians, such as the oca, a relative of our sheep sorrel, the añu, a kind of nasturtium, and the uluku, ulucus tuberosus, on the flats near the shore were large corrals still kept in good repair. New walls were being built by the Indians at the time of our visit. Near the southeast corner of the lake were a few modern huts built of stone and adobe with thatched roofs inhabited by drovers and shepherds.
We saw more cattle at the east end of the lake than elsewhere, but they seemed to prefer the sweet-water grasses of the lake to the tough bunch-grass on the slopes of Sarasara. Piscachas were common amongst the gray lichen-covered rocks. They are hunted for their beautiful pearly gray fur, the chinchilla of commerce. They are also very good eating, so they have disappeared from the more accessible parts of Peru. One rarely sees them, although they may be found on bleak uplands in the mountains of Huilcapampa, a region rarely visited by anyone on account of treacherous bogs and deep tams. Writers sometimes call Vizcachas rabbit squirrels. They have large rounded ears, long hind legs, a long bushy tail, and do look like a cross between a rabbit and a gray squirrel. Surmounting one of the higher ridges one day, I came suddenly upon an unusually large herd of wild vicuñas. It included more than one hundred individuals. Their relative fearlessness also testified to the remoteness of Paranacochas and the small amount of hunting that is done here. Vicuñas have never been domesticated, but are often hunted for their skins. Their silky fleece is even finer than alpaca. The more fleecy portions of their skins are sewed together to make quilts, as soft as eiderdown and of a golden brown color. After Mr. Tucker finished his triangulation of the lake, I told the arriaros to find the shortest road home. They smiled, murmured Arequipa, and started south. We soon came to the rim of the Maracasa Valley, where, peeping up over one of the hills far to the south, we got a little glimpse of Coropuna. The Maracasa Valley is well inhabited, and there were many grain fields in sight, although few seemed to be terraced. The surrounding hills were smooth and well-rounded, and the valley bottom contained much alluvial land. We passed through it, and, after dark, reached Sondor, a tiny hamlet inhabited by extremely suspicious and inhospitable drovers. In the darkness, Don Pablo pleaded with the owners of a well-thatched hut and told them how important we were. They were unwilling to give us any shelter, so we were forced to pitch our tent in the very rocky and dirty corral immediately in front of one of the huts, where pigs, dogs, and cattle annoyed us all night. If we had arrived before dark, we might have received a different welcome. As a matter of fact, the herdsmen only showed the customary hostility of mountaineers and wilderness folk to those who do not arrive in the daytime when they can be plainly seen and fully discussed. The next morning we passed some fairly recent lava flows and noted also many curious rock forms caused by wind and sand erosion. We had now left the belt of grazing lands and once more come into the desert. At length we reached the rim of the mile-deep Caravelli Canyon and our eyes were gladdened at sight of the rich green oasis, a striking contrast to the barren walls of the canyon. As we descended the long, winding road, we passed many fine specimens of tree cactus. At the foot of the steep descent, we found ourselves separated from the nearest settlement by a very wide river, which it was necessary to ford. Neither of the Tejadas had ever been here before, and its depths and dangers were unknown. Fortunately, Pablo found a forlorn individual living in a tiny hut on the bank, who indicated which way lay safety. 
After an exciting two hours, we finally got across to the desired shore. Animals and men were glad enough to leave the high, arid desert and enter the oasis of Caravelli with its luscious green fields of alfalfa, its shady fig trees, and tall eucalyptus. The air, pungent with the smell of rich vegetation, seemed cooler and more invigorating. We found at Caravelli a modern British enterprise, the gold mine of La Victoria. Mr. Prain, the manager, and his associates at the camp gave us a cordial welcome, and a wonderful dinner which I shall long remember. After two months in the coastal desert, it seemed like home. During the evening, we learned of the difficulties Mr. Prain had had in bringing his machinery across the plateau from the nearest port. Our own troubles seemed as nothing. The cost of transporting on muleback each of the larger pieces of the quartz stamping mill was equivalent to the price of a first-class pack mule. As a matter of fact, although it is only a two days' journey, pack animals' backs are not built to survive the strain of carrying pieces of machinery weighing 500 pounds over a desert plateau up to an altitude of 4,000 feet. Mules brought the machinery from the coast to the brink of the canyon, but no mule could possibly have carried it down the steep trail into Caravelli. Accordingly, a windlass had been constructed on the edge of the precipice, and the machinery had been lowered, piece by piece, by block and tackle. Such was one of the obstacles with which these undaunted engineers had had to contend. Had the man who designed the machinery ever traveled with a pack train, climbing up and down over these rocky stairways called mountain trails, I am sure that he would have made his castings much smaller. It is astonishing how often people who ship goods to the interior of South America fail to realize that no single piece should be any heavier than a pack animal can carry comfortably on one side. 150 pounds ought to be the extreme limit of a unit. Even a large, strong mule will last only a few days on such trails as are shown in the accompanying illustration if the total weight of his cargo is over 300 pounds. When a single piece weighs more than 200 pounds, it has to be balanced on the back of the animal. Then the load rocks and chafes the unfortunate mule. Besides causing great inconvenience and constant worry to the muleteers. As a matter of expediency, it is better to have the individual units weigh about 75 pounds. Such a weight is easier for the arrieros to handle in the loading, unloading, and reloading that goes on all day long, particularly if the trail is up and down, as usually happens in the Andes. Furthermore, one 75-pound unit makes a fair load for a man or a yama. Two are right for a burro, and three for an average mule. Four can be loaded, if necessary, on a stout mule. The hospitable mining engineers urged us to prolong our stay at La Victoria, but we had to hasten on. Leaving the pleasant shade trees of Caravelli, we climbed the barren, desolate hills of coarse gravel and lava rock and left the canyon. We were surprised to find near the top of the rise the scattered foundations of fifty little circular or oval huts averaging eight feet in diameter. There was no water near here. Hardly a green thing of any sort was to be seen in the vicinity, yet here had once been a village. It seemed to belong to the same period as that found on the southern slopes of the Paranacochas Basin. 
The road was one of the worst we encountered anywhere, being at times merely a rough, rocky trail over and among huge piles of lava blocks. Several of the larger boulders were covered with pictographs. They represented a serpent and a sun, besides men and animals. Shortly afterwards, we descended to the Rio Grande Valley at Kalanga, where we pitched our camps among the most extensive ruins that I have seen in the coastal desert. They covered an area of one hundred acres, the houses being crowded closely together. It gave one a strange sensation to find such a very large metropolis in what is now a desolate region. The general appearance of Kalanga was strikingly reminiscent of some of the large groups of ruins in our own southwest. Nothing about it indicated Inca origin. There were no terraces in the vicinity. It is difficult to imagine what such a large population could have done here, or how they lived. The walls were of compact cobblestones, rough laid and stuccoed with adobe and sand. Most of the stucco had come off. Some of the houses had seats or small sleeping platforms built up at one end. Others contained two or three small cells, possibly storerooms, with neither doors nor windows. We found a number of burial cysts, some square, others rounded, lined with small cobblestones. In one house, at the foot of cellar stairs, we found a subterranean room, or tomb. The entrance to it was covered with a single stone lintel. In examining this tomb, Mr. Tucker had a narrow escape from being bitten by a boba, a venomous snake, nearly three feet in length, with vicious mouth, long fangs like a rattlesnake, and a strikingly mottled skin. At one place there was a low pyramid less than ten feet in height. To its top led a flight of rude stone steps. Among the ruins we found a number of broken stone dishes, rudely carved out of soft, highly porous, scoriaceous lava. The dishes must have been hard to keep clean. We also found a small stone mortar, probably used for grinding paint, a broken stone war club, and a broken compact stone mortar and pestle, possibly used for grinding corn. Two stones, a foot and a half long, roughly rounded, with a shallow groove across the middle of the flatter sides, resembled sinkers used by fishermen to hold down large nets, although ten times larger than any I had ever seen used. Perhaps they were to tie down roofs in a gale. There were a few potsherds lying on the surface of the ground, so weathered as to have lost whatever decoration they once had. We did no excavating. Kalanga offers an interesting field for archaeological investigation. Unfortunately, we had heard nothing of it previously, came upon it unexpectedly, and had but little time to give it. After the first night camp in the midst of the dead city, we made the discovery that although it seemed to be entirely deserted, it was, as a matter of fact, well populated. I was reminded of Professor T. D. Seymour's story of his studies in the ruins of ancient Greece. We wondered what the fleas live on ordinarily. Our next stopping place was a small town of Andere, whose thatched houses are built chiefly of stone plastered with mud. Near it we encountered two men with a mule, which they said they were taking into town to sell, and were willing to dispose of cheaply. The Tahadas could not resist the temptation to buy a good animal at a bargain, although the circumstances were suspicious. 
Drawing on us for six gold sovereigns, they smilingly added the new mule to the pack train, only to discover on reaching Chuquibamba that they had purchased it from thieves. We were able to clear our arriaros of any complicity in the theft. Nevertheless, the owner of the stolen mule was unwilling to pay anything for its return. So they lost their bargain and their gold. We spent one night in Chuquibamba with our friend Señor Benavides, the sub-prefect, and once more took up the well-traveled route to Araquipa. We left the Majes Valley in the afternoon, and, as before, spent the night crossing the desert. About three o'clock in the morning, after we had been jogging steadily along for about twelve hours in the dark and quiet of the night, the only sound the shuffle of the mule's feet in the sand, the only sight an occasional crescent-shaped dune, dimly visible in the starlight, the eastern horizon began to be faintly illumined. The moon had long since set. Could this be the approach of dawn? Sunrise was not due for at least two hours. In the tropics, there was little twilight preceding the day. The dawn comes up like thunder. Surely the moon could not be going to rise again. What could be the meaning of the rapidly brightening eastern sky? While we watched and marveled, the pure white light grew brighter and brighter until we cried out in ecstasy as a dazzling luminary rose majestically above the horizon. A splendor neither of the sun nor of the moon shone upon us. It was the morning star. For sheer beauty, divine enchanting ravishment, Venus that day surpassed anything I have ever seen. In the words of the great eastern poet, who had often seen such a sight in the deserts of Asia, the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. End of section 8 Recording by William Tomko